So, Berto, I have a bunch of emails from the listeners, and I thought we'd read them and answer them. What do you say, Berto? Sounds fun. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor, and one of my favorite things to do is to answer patron emails, truly. Huh. My name is Umberto Castaneda. I also love uh, answering patron emails, and I am an amateur cloud surfer. This first email is from patron Annie from England. She writes, how do I manage my awful spending problem? I spend a lot of time and money on a video game. My life centers around this game and has been giving me a real sense of accomplishment over the past two years. But I've spent thousands on loot boxes. I get such a compulsion to open these loot boxes, and it's never enough. What should I do, Berta? What should she do? Oh, my gosh. Well... I do have a lot to say about uh, spending compulsions. I never, I guess, luckily uh, landed into a video game spending loop. Uh, I also didn't end up gambling, um, meaning, you know, like going to Vegas. I've been to Vegas, but never had a problem with gambling and stuff. My spending compulsions were around clothing, buying clothing and buying uh, expensive music equipment. also about eating uh, at restaurants and paying for other people at bars and restaurants. I think that was the main way that in which I would spend. Oh, actually, no. I would also buy books. <laughs> I remember going to Barnes & Noble. And so I would have this thing that I finally stopped doing, man. So I would get an idea in my head. I'm like, oh, I've got it. I'm going to become this thing. And you're like, you know, imagine someone that always has different jobs Every week is a new job. Like, I want to do this. I want to do that. Like, just imagine that. And so I would get an idea in my head, and then I would go to Barnes & Noble to load up on the books that I would need to learn about that thing. And I would would compulse, I would spend like 500 bucks on books or something and take home this stack of books with this intention, like I'm going to read all these books and become a new expert at this thing. And more often than not, out of that stack of books, I would read like one of them. And the rest of them would just stay there as like a to-do. Uh, and then after a while, I'd have like just thousands of dollars of books sitting there. Um, and I, I remember a few years ago, uh, I don't know, like eight years ago. I can't remember how many now, but it was a, a bit ago. I finally went through a cl- cleansing process and I took like box after box after box to donate it. Or I, I guess I sold it to the half price books, which meant for like a full box of books, I get like two bucks or something. Uh, but it was actually beautiful. I almost, I almost should have just donated them, but it was, it was almost the same um, because the money was irrelevant. Like I got almost no money out of it, but it was okay. Like I, I just felt like these loads of weight, like unloading, unloading. Um, and I finally was able to stop that behavior of like, I want to learn a new thing. So I'm going to go spend all this money. I used to spend, uh, I used to go to the mall and get this little bug in my ear. Like, oh, you should, you should stop into that expensive store over there, that one that sells the really boutique clothing. Um, and, and the other part of me would be like, no, 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 I don't, I don't need that. I, I actually, I'm okay on clothes. And then that voice would be like, oh, come on. Like, you, you know, you could look better if, like when you're going out next time and you deserve this. You really deserve it. Like, think about how much you work. Like, you deserve this. And inevitably, that voice would win over. I would enter the store completely panicky. 
on the inside. On the outside, I was like, doo, 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 I'm a rich person. I have so much money. I can buy all this store if I want it. But on the inside, I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you in here? You don't have money. You're already on your credit card. What are you doing? And then I would buy stuff. And as I'm buying stuff, the clerk would, of course, be like, oh, I could offer you this belt. And how about these shoes? And on the outside, I was like, yeah, that's right, because I'm a successful individual who can afford all these things. In fact, you don't know it, but sure, like I'll take two of those shoes if I wanted to. I'm only going to take one, but I could, because you don't even know how powerful I really am. But on the inside, what am I doing? I should just walk out. Why am I buying these things? Stop it. Stop it. You're not listening to me. Um, And inevitably, the little voice in my head would lose. The big voice on the outside would win. I'd walk out with bags feeling proud on the outside and like ready to wear my new stuff and feeling destroyed on the inside. It happened all the time. It was terrible. Yeah. And to put it on a scale, it was thousands of dollars worth of clothes. It wasn't just like 150. And it escalated. It was every year. Like it would get worse. Yeah. Like you would buy jackets that were thousand dollars, just, you know, $3,000 just for the jacket alone kind of. Yeah. Now, the, so. the, the harsh reality is like when it comes to giving advice about these things, as you probably have encountered, I could tell you any number of things. But the fact is until I had a moment of clarity, like people that struggle with substances will talk about, I really didn't have a way to pull out of the, of the nosedive. The moment of clarity for me was when I had purchased this one jacket that cost me $3,000. And I bought it because I wanted to perform at this talent thing. And I thought if I just had the right look, if I just had that jacket, that would really set me apart. That's going to make me successful. And the irony was when I performed, the, the judges that were judging this thing, they complimented my song. They complimented my performance. The one thing they didn't like was that they didn't like the stupid freaking jacket they thought it didn't look right on me and of course this is just a value judgment it doesn't matter that's not the point the point is that at that moment it's my like, neurons finally fired yeah it's like rock bottom <laughs> yes because like, like the ultimate this disaster the most money i had ever spent and then it was the worst decision yeah and that for some reason after that i was i actually took that jacket back to the store which is something i was never able to do before they wouldn't take it back so then I had to sell it for like a, a thousand. I think I lost at yeah. least half or a th- or two thirds online yeah, the, immediately. The shame that you grew up with, with not having a lot of things. And then when you were in your twenties and you had enough money to actually buy things was a way of chasing away that shame, the, yep. the suffering of the, the poor Colombian that, that, is ridiculed for not having the the right doodads in the 70s right. and 80s. And as you were running from that shame, it didn't solve the shame, but it would, you know, you'd have these little blips of not having as much shame. I got the perfect jacket. And for a little bit of time, less shame. And then the shame would come back in. You need to buy more things. And then... When you were shamed for the jacket, <laughs> you're like, wait a second, what is By happening? By the people that I was supposedly trying to impress yeah. with the jacket. <laughs> and you had been building awareness and um, yeah. self uh, kind of 
determination to overcome this for a while. And it's, you know, that, that was the, the last straw, if you will. And you said to yourself, I have to shame. I, I, I'm so ashamed, but I realized that that's the problem. Yeah. I have to get used to the shame and I don't want to take the jacket back. Maybe I'll just keep it. But no, you know, Umberto, you talking to yourself, I have to face that shame and experience the shame of taking it back to the store mm-hmm. because if I don't really break myself of this dependence on running from that shame, I'm going to be right back on the horse again in a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever had problems with loot boxes? So like I said, I've been lucky that gambling, including video game gambling, I haven't I never fell into that. But well, some people I wouldn't painfully... call it some people call it, you know, video game gambling. And I mean because the other yeah. way you could also, you know, other games like um, Farmville and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, where you 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 pay to play, you know, uh, if In you've fact, ever, I'm yeah, sorry. If you've ever played these games to be out there, like you know, Diablo three, for example. Like, if if you spend money, you could probably get a better sword if you wanted to, right? You could, at the very least, buy the sword from another player, or maybe even right. from the game itself. That's how they make money from the game, you know. And so, there's a lot of people out there because these games are literally designed with the it with that in mind. In the same way that cigarettes are designed, you know, they don't make nicotine free cigarettes. Right. Why? Because they know that you will become addicted to nicotine and you will need yeah. to buy more cigarettes. Uh, at Starbucks, they're not pushing their decaf options. <laughs> Why? Because they know that they sell an addictive substance that if you become addicted, you will you will create a habit and it and it will get worse and worse. You'll not just need one cup of coffee. You're going to need two in a month, and you're going to need three in three months. <laughs> so for video games, when they their job is to make money. So when they give a free version away to you, they know that there's – and they also know that there's, a, there's only a percentage of people that will develop a problem. They have it all, stat, they have it all yep. statted out. They, they'll, they'll say, okay, 0.3% – are are giving us ninety percent of our revenue of yeah, the whales. people of the people who play this game. One out of three hundred people will spend three thousand dollars on this game in a year. Seventy yep. percent uh, of the people will spend five dollars or less. They know that. So, yeah. and anyone in the room who has any understanding of compulsion or addiction, they have to at least cross their it has to cross their brain. <laughs> That what they are doing is they are making money off of people who have problems, you know, because how many people are like, yay, I spent $3,000 on a game that is free. (laughs) No, dude, I I have been so against those kinds of games from the start. And, you know, partially, it's this thing we were talking about in another episode, but like, I don't like... Uh, cheating at a game and so to me if I'm going to play a video game the fun for me is me actually using like practice to get better at the game it's okay if I'm not the best player in the world but I I don't want to cheat I just want to see how good I can get right and so if I just can pay indefinite amounts of money and then just get better and better. There was this game I loved on my iPhone until so it was this game it was this little uh, drag racing game it had all these cool cars and all these cool graphics uh, but it was also like you could pay to progress faster. And I, I didn't. Like I, I refused to. 
Uh, and it seemed to let me keep going just by trying harder and getting better. Until at one point in the game where I proved to myself it was impossible for me to keep going without buying their thing. And I would have gladly paid them up front 10 bucks for that game. But at this point, I felt so cheated that, like, look, you're not letting me just use my skills. You're forcing me to pay you yeah. addictive type of money. No, right. I'm out. So, so they do their research, and they're like, well, of the people who figure this out, some of them are going to leave this game. Well, yeah. they were not customers to begin with because they're not likely to spend right. much money for whatever reason. And they figure out, oh, but there's going to be a group of people that will. Now, I'm not putting people down for spending $3,000 on a game. If you have the you know, money and it, you're not ashamed of it and you, f- you feel okay with it, that's fine. I, I collectively probably spend $1,000 a year on just buying video games outright. I'm, I'm currently playing Crusader Kings 3. Have you heard of Crusader Kings, the, the video game? No. It's, it's like you're a king in feudal Europe and – it's like a, it's like Sims feudal Europe, if that makes oh, sense. I think you told me about this the other day. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, and so, um, so I get it. You know, spending money on Vegas, but you're asking patron Annie from England. You know what? What should you do? You, you say I get such a compulsion to open these loot boxes and pay for them, and it's never enough. Okay. So one, you can go to therapy. Two, you can go to Spenders Anonymous. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous for overspenders. And three is to deal with it like it's an addiction because it. There, some people will say it can't be an addiction because it's not substance, but other people say it's behavioral addiction. So I'm going to read off all of the uh, signs that we define, in, uh, you know, sort of informally in our field as because as what an addiction is. It's the inability to stop, meaning that you, when you try to stop, you can't. Continue, you, you continue to do it despite problems happening. So for you, patron Annie, you're like, I have, I've been spending money, and I also feel bad about myself, and I keep doing it. Right. And, and this doesn't mean there's something wrong with you, patron Annie. It means you're, nor- you're a normal human being who has a compulsive you know, tendency – and the game absolutely is trying to target your vulnerability. Um, another is it that the compulsion numbs your feelings. So this is where emotional awareness comes in, where you're like, okay, when am I more vulnerable to buying the loot boxes? When am I more vulnerable to, to over-drinking? When am I more vulnerable to buying that $3,000 jacket? Well, if your feelings are overwhelming, you have no other way of dealing with it, and this is the primary thing that I find tr- to be true that isn't emphasized enough is that I have never met someone with a compulsion or an addiction that wasn't doing it for a very good reason. Some emotional suffering was happening that the compulsion or addiction absolutely mitigated for a period of time. Right. I mean, some substances like heroin will literally take away the neurons involved in – uh, or the neurochemistry involved in the suffering. Also, obsession, uh, progressive of getting worse is another sign. You know, I'm guessing, Patron Annie, at first you're like, ah, oh, do I buy a loot box? And you bought like one, and then like three weeks later you were buying two, and it just gets worse. That's another problem that happens. Birdo started out buying a $50 jacket and graduated to a $3,000 one. Um, yeah, actually, uh, t- to that point, um, I, I 
still remember. Think about how memorable this must be. I remember the first time this started with the clothes. It was uh, the summer right after high school. I was working uh, for, for a company cleaning carpets. So I was making a little more money than I was at McDonald's. And I, was, and I felt like I, was, I had so much disposable income. And part of the thing is during the day, we had to drive from site to site. So we get some downtime here and there, certainly for lunch. So we would stop at the mall. And I went into Eddie Bauer. And I remember like, oh, these are really cool. And that was my first. And then I felt like, you know what? I have money. I can buy clothes. And it was like this light bulb clicked in my head. And I'm like, why haven't I been buying clothes? I have money. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that first thing. You, right. So it's like, oh, my God, heroin feels good. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, another sign is that you make sacrifices for the compulsion. Another sign is that you're dropping hobbies and activities in lieu of this other thing. Another thing is secrecy and solitude. This is a pretty sure sign that you got an issue is when you're secretive about it. Another is that you're in denial. Now, patron Annie, you're not in denial, so you, you don't have that one. And the last one is financial difficulties that occur because of it. Man, so like the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians must have had constant spending compulsions, huh? Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, hopefully Berto has a better sense of humor. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. We're back from the break. So 5,000 years from now, when archaeologists, like the way we go into Egypt pyramids and we unearth the tomb of Tutankhamun. Right. They come upon our podcast uh-huh. and they are giving a lecture to a group of students. This is the most convoluted one I've ever done. <laughs> and they're giving a lecture to a group of students as an archaeologist. And they're like, so what they might have said, 5,000, we've pieced it all together, is that they had this thing where they wanted everyone to become a patron um, and I know no one understands this because we're all energy beings at this point, but um, let me let me role play with you what that would sound like, Berto. What would that lecture be? So we have pieced together the tiny semblances of evidence from the quantum interactions of what was left from one of these recording devices called cloud servers. And... It turns out that this is probably 99% accurate. Roll tape, please. I don't know what tape is, but roll it. <laughs> Hello. My name is Roberto Castaneda. Hi. <laughs> I am a professional at the things. I am Kirk Honda. I am also professional with many other things. Yeah, you should totally support us now. Do it. <laughs> It's great for your health and your mind. Uh, it sounds quite frightening to us nowadays, but at the time, this was quite common to hear these sort of pronouncements. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best one yet. And so convoluted. I mean, they're just going to get worse and worse, I'm guessing. That's my compulsion. That's my progressively getting worse part of it. You're opening more loot boxes. Yeah, I guess getting back to Patreon, Annie, I I feel like I wasn't. So I was laying out the 
signs of addiction, not to sort of just diagnose it. But the the point is, is that when we suffer, we will look for ways to alleviate our suffering. And one of the ways available to us clearly is through compulsive and addictive activities. When you are buying that loop, you know, as the loot box is sitting there, well, one, the video game itself, you're suffering, you're alone, you're distressed, you, you know, you're unsure about your life or whatever. And playing this video game helps a little bit. Nothing wrong with that. And then this loot box comes along and you're just like, oh, if I just had that loot box, I will just, I'll get a shot. You know, the first time you opened a loot box, Patreon, Andy, you probably got a shot of endorphins that, and for, you know, a brief moment, 15 minutes, maybe less, you were not suffering. Your brain was actually in a state of contentment because what the loot box did is it gave you that what it meant to you. And then you bought another loot box because either consciously or unconsciously, you were looking for that feeling of contentment again. I don't know if this is true for you, Patreon, but this is common. But one loot box didn't really work. You needed to buy the more expensive loot box. And, and then the feeling came back, okay, I'm content again. And so it just cascades and totally normal. The problem is not the loot boxes. The problem is that you're suffering and you have no other way to alleviate your suffering. This is true for heroin addiction. I found this to be true about everyone who has had an addiction is that they were in such a state of suffering that they needed this. And so what I did with them is I tried to help them with their suffering and then, you know, maybe the compulsion will go away in the future. But the suffering was the much bigger issue as a society And as individuals, we tend to say, oh, there's something wrong with me. I need to stop doing this loot boxing. I need to stop buying those those jackets. For Birdo, he was already growing in, you know, maturity and healing from his past. And, you know, it wasn't that he just stopped buying those expensive clothes. He told himself, I need to love myself regardless of my clothes. I need to say to myself, it's okay that I don't have the best clothes in the world. It's okay. I'm I'm still a good person without that jacket. <laughs> Wait, are you are you putting my clothes down in this? Like is this one of those backhanded <laughs> <laughs> uh, patron Julia wrote in. I've been experiencing a lot of eco anxiety with how the world is going. These California fires are that are reaching as far as Seattle have triggered a whole new level of panic in me. I'm currently in the process of applying to Antioch for grad school, actually, but keep thinking, what's the point if the world is just going to burn into flames? The uncertainty is terrifying to me, having all these goals planned out in my head and now thinking I might not even be able to achieve them due to something that is out of my control. I wanted to hear your insight on this and how you keep yourself from going crazy in these disheartening times. Berto, what do you think? I can totally relate to this. I have to be honest. And this is this is going to be very entitled, first worldy, whatever. It's true. But I had the hardest time so far with the lockdown, with the COVID pandemic. I had the hardest time in the last, you know, the, the, the 10 days or so that we spent with, ter- with a lot of smoke up here in this area. Uh, and like, look, I realized I didn't lose a house to fire. I realize that I'm I'm super lucky that I have not and those around me have not gotten sick or, or worse. I realize that. I, I realize I'm so lucky because I get to order food f- online and magically gets delivered. And I, 
that these are all true. It's just that what happened is like, even though I haven't been able to see my friends in person and I've been like, you know, all this stuff, at least I could get outside, get some sun, do, I would exercise outside. I would like, you know, see the neighbors at least. And, uh, and when that didn't happen and I spent like days inside, day after day after day, the combination of the absolute correct realization that the environment, that nature is not something we can cram for. It's not a quick little fix we can do. That it is something that is the the ma- orders of magnitude more powerful than us. So that coupled with like that almost claustrophobia, man, those were the hardest days so far for me in this thing. Uh, absolutely. I look at it and I'm like, where can one be safe? So I used to think of this Northwest area as one of the safer areas, not just for uh, extreme weather events, but I thought maybe even as climate gets worse, I thought, well, you know, we don't have a lot of hurricanes and things. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, fires can reach us. And if the fires don't initially, the smoke definitely reaches us. Is this going to be a yearly thing? It looks like it. Looks like it's going to get worse. And then I'm like, where can one go? Yeah. Do so I move back to Colombia? What do I do? For people that don't know this in Seattle I've, I've lived in Seattle my whole life it's been 49 years and there's never been uh, uh, up until four years so we had two years of major fires in the summer where uh, two summers in a row we basically had all of August or something where you basically couldn't leave the house yeah. now back then you could go to another place inside you could go to like a movie theater <laughs> at least but yeah but it was pretty bad. And then last summer, we didn't have fires. And then this summer, we again had fires. Not as bad as we did it a couple of years ago. But that's three out of four summers. In my life, that's never happened, ever. Not even once, up until four years yeah. ago. Um, maybe kind of, but not enough to essentially create conditions where they're saying you no one should go outside <laughs> like yeah. you know nobody should be outside at all it's like basically just being outside being inside because the smoke's gonna it's gonna sneak its way inside is basically you're basically all smoking cigarettes at this point yep. and uh, so for people who don't know you know it's not like so hurricanes in florida there's always been hurricanes in florida there's more hurricanes in florida now in in seattle we never had forest fires that would affect us in the city in this way. So it's a completely new thing. And agreed, same with me. It got pretty bad. And and it was only for like 10 days where the smoke was pretty bad. I was checking the air condition, even though I could clearly see outside that nothing (laughs) had changed. I kept checking the air condition about like literally 20 times a day because I'm like... Yeah, compulsively. Can I go... Because same, the the one thing that I could I looked forward to was me and the wife taking the dog out for a for a walk. And we, yeah. and, and we would go on long walks, like two-hour walks, just because it's like, nice. well, at least we're outside kind of doing something, you know? Yeah. And to have that taken away too, yeah. it was just depressing. Yep. Yeah. So it's so, hard, and, and uh, sorry, and then the climate, the climate realization. Uh, I guess the the super set for me right now is that I am finding it. Uh, I'm finding it sort of self fulfilling because we are, 
we are not guaranteed anything in this universe, <laughs> you know? Like, it looks, you know, we live in this illusion, like, oh, yeah, humans are a thing. Humans are here. We're here to stay. But that's not a guarantee. Like, nothing's guaranteed. And this is a, a reminder. Like, we, we are headed in a direction where we have no control over what we do at a macro scale past a certain tipping point. Uh, we're already way past the levels where it would have been reasonable to try to do something about it. So now it's like, and again, cramming for this isn't going to work. So I, I don't know what's coming. <laughs> it's really yeah. scary. But you're asking, Patron Julia, I have all these goals planned in my head, and now I think I can't even be able to achieve them because the world is going to end soon, essentially. Well, it's not going to end that fast, and you still need to live. If you make the choice to live, what are you going to do, and how are you going to help? So oh. if, if you feel like helping the world via mental health is going to help us, great. That's oh. fantastic. I think you're right. So that's what you're now, saying. Yeah. And so like, don't, don't, don't stop making those choices, because as soon as you stop, that's the self-fulfilling part. If we all say, what's the point? We will be right. There will be no point. It will be over. Yeah, I like it. So here's my system for people, because there's been so many questions along these lines of like, how do I cope with what's happening right now? Whether it's COVID or, you know, the fires or Black Lives Matter, you know, what, what do I do? Well, the first thing is you have to determine what your purpose in life is. Why are you on this planet? And Berto is saying his philosophy. It's sort of a broader question, but it is basically a purpose. It's like, well, you're either a benefit to the world right now or you're not. And you can give up or you can you know, do something that's useful to the universe. And to more specifically, uh, patron Julia is why are you on this planet? You know, why did the universe or God or whatever put you on this planet? What are you here to do? You know, if it's like me to help other people, then okay, establish that. That's step one. Why are you here? Because if you have no purpose on the planet and the planet is being hard to you, then there is no point. <laughs> You know, why move on and, and try when there's no reason to try? So you need to have a reason internally, and that's where your purpose in life comes from. Number two is, okay, now let's talk about how you feel. What are you feeling? Well, I'm guessing, Julia, you feel afraid and you feel demoralized and hopeless. Okay. Step three, recognize that emotions are our friends. They're useful. They're good. We shouldn't cope with our feelings we recognize our feelings. They tell us about our needs. They tell us about our, you know, important things to us. So, so that's three. Number four is, okay, what needs are being alerted? Well, when you feel afraid and demoralized, I'm guessing that the needs of safety and the needs for hope are being challenged. Okay, number five is make a plan. Okay, you want to increase your safety and increase your hope. So you got to make a plan. And it might be, I don't know, but this is your plan, Julia. Maybe it's voting more wisely. Maybe it's advocating more about, you know, carbon footprint stuff. Maybe you become vegan. Um, maybe you just generally raise awareness for climate change. Maybe you also, to raise your hope and safety, you reduce scary news in your life and you find positive news in your life. Maybe you also study history. Maybe you study the science or, you know, whatever, whatever, your, whatever your plan makes sense to you to address your need for safety, which is real. That's what your emotions are telling you, and your need for hope. 
So that's where the plan comes in. Now, you can give up and you could say, but there's no point. But as Berto's saying, it's just like, well, that's a choice, you know? It's a choice that you make. And I see it the same way. Number six is enact the plan. So you're trying to, your emotions are telling you something about your needs. And uh, if you just sit there and do nothing, the feelings are going to remain. So make a plan to address those needs so that your feelings of fear and demoralization will go down. Then after you enact your plan and you feel good about it, assess if you have any more feelings because you probably will. Probably still have some fear and some demoralization. Go back to the drawing board. Maybe there's more plans you need to do. Maybe you're not doing enough to address those needs. Any excess feelings beyond that is not helpful. It's not helpful to be afraid and demoralized after you've enacted all the plans that you can develop to that you have power over to address your need for safety and hope. And that's what we want to target. That's what we want to mitigate somehow and quote-unquote get rid of because it's not helpful. If I see a saber-toothed tiger jump out at me in the woods and, and I get afraid and that fear generates so much energy in my body that I run very fast and I get away from the saber-toothed tiger, well, three days later, if I'm still afraid of a saber-toothed tiger, even though it, there's no evidence of it being around, um, I think, well, what do I do? Well, assess a plan. Well, next time I'll avoid that area. Um, I'll also make sure I don't stray away from the crowd. I'll also, you know, just be a little bit more careful about what I'm doing. Okay, I've, I've made my plan. I still feel afraid. Well, any fear beyond that, it doesn't help because it's just going to bring you down. It, and it, there's nothing you can do beyond what you can do. And so that's what we want to target through talking about it, you know, returning to meaning and purpose, distractions, cognitive therapy, these kinds of things. So that's my advice. Now, I'm not saying that that's an easy process. I'm not saying that you should do it. I'm just saying that's what I do. And if you came to me and you said, I want to target this as a thing in therapy, this is what I would run you through. It might take years to run through that because for some people, I, I literally talk with them for years about what is the purpose of your life. It's not an easy question for people to answer. And without that, there's no foundation for why you should persevere. If you have no purpose on this planet, it's hard to know why you're doing anything, let alone pushing and against a wave of climate change that is ever building and crashing against us. You know, you need something to give you strength. Now, you know, other purposes in life could just be like, well, my purpose in life is to be with people and to do collective things with people or my purpose in life is to love my children or my purpose in life is to teach people or my purpose in life is to live and survive. You know, there's, there's very simple purposes in life, but you need to have that and you need – when you're demoralized, that's what you return to. That's what you go back to and you say, yes, the world is going down the tubes as far as I can tell, but – before I die, I am going to do this. This is what I'm going to do because that feels right to me. You ne everyone needs to have that. And if you only halfway have it, people out there, get more of it because, boy, is it energizing to me. My purpose in life is to, in my way, try to make the world a better place. 
and it it focuses me. I was talking with um, some business people that I can't reveal yet, but there will be an announcement at some point about my next business thing. <laughs> but um, throughout it, there's all this talk about contracts and percentage shares and money and, you know, and fame potentially. You know, there's all these kinds of amorphous sort of things that might happen as a result of my decision to um, do this business adventure, business venture, <laughs> business adventure. Um, and it's tempting to be like, oh, you know, money. Oh, you know, fame. And then I think, but wait, that's not your purpose. <laughs> You've never said, oh, you know, for some people that might be their purpose. It's not my purpose to be more famous. It's not my purpose to make more money. It's my purpose to make the world a better place. And so it galvanizes me. And as people are trying to influence me to do X, Y, and Z, I'm like, well, that is not going to realize my goal of making the world a better place. And so I'm not going to do that. That would actually be in line with a goal of making more money and making me more fame. But I don't care about that. I mean, I, right. I guess I narcissistically kind of do, but it's not my core value. And so... So I'm not going to do that. But that other thing that you want to do, that will allow me to make, you know, try to make the world a better place. And so that's what I'm going to do. It really helps to comb through the BS of life. And when I see the, the fires burning and I can't uh, breathe outside, yeah, I'm demoralized. But I wake up in the morning and I say, well, Kirk, you're going to try to make the world a better place. And yes, I do talk to myself in the third person. Actually, I don't. Um, even just saying my name out loud sounded mm -hmm. kind of funny. But I persevere because a long time ago, I connected in my soul my purpose in life, and I have the means to do it. And so everyone out there, and Patron Julia included, if you haven't found that yet, you deserve to go on a journey of potentially years of exploration to find that purpose. You need that. Yeah, I mean, it's very well said. I think it can take a lifetime. You may never find it or realize you found it, but that's part of the journey. Uh, I, I kind of, I think of one thing, which is, uh, I remember my grandpa, not the one you've met, the other grandpa that I had. He he died a long, long time ago. Um, so I never knew him very well, but I knew a couple things about him. I knew he was an inventor. I knew he, that he basically you know, organized the building of his own house. You know, he, he, he basically, you know, bought a land and then put the house together. <laughs> um, so impressive. Uh, and there were a lot of things that he did that I was just like, man, how, how could you even do that? Um, but the biggest thing that I think he, he did, and I think he would have said this, was his family like how he was to his family because every everyone I talked to about him that knew him better than me because they were they knew him when he was younger and everything they just spoke so glowingly about him how generous he was how much you know how how he was always there for them how how much he he gave this is true of his sons and daughter this is true of other people that are relatives other people that are not relatives people even on the on the on the other side of the family that were my mom's side of the family that certainly you know there was a lot of bad blood between my dad and my mom they speak so highly or they spoke so highly of him and i look at that and i'm like okay he left a mark in this world 
you know? And he did it not by the fact that he built the house or that he was inventing this. He did it about the relationships he had with all the other people and that he p- apparently put his all into those relationships. And so that's, uh, that's the thing that I think is, is not to be underestimated. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I didn't know that. I didn't know about that. It's your, yeah. it's your dad's dad. That's my dad's dad. Yeah. Dad's dad. What happened to your dad? <laughs> <laughs> he went the other way. No, just he, yeah, I don't know. He's, he's an interesting character. I mean, your dad's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. I like just, him, but he's not successful, you know? No, but you know, when he was younger, he was very charismatic and he... Oh, he still is. People, right, you're right. It's just that I guess he was more connected and the people really looked up to him. Yeah. Everyone really admired him and he was like Dr. Umberto and all these things. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I don't know. Your but, dad's name is Umberto? Yeah, he's Hugo Umberto. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I have his middle name, basically. And I, I have know. no middle name. But he went by his middle name? It depends. Uh, his mom called him Uguito, which I think he didn't like. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. We get back. Let's, in the next 15 minutes, power through Every email left because I, I want I, I get such a satisfaction from powering through all the emails. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. All right, we're back from the break. Listener Claire from Sammamish, where I grew up, uh, says, "I work with patients in cardiac and vascular diagnostics, doing echoes and other diagnostic studies, and I have noticed that a lot of my patients." who have had an adverse health event, heart attack, stroke, etc., seem to be having what looks to me like PTSD from their adverse health events when they enter the exam room with me. When they come in to get routine follow-ups, I notice that their heart rate is increased, they get sweaty, they respond in short sentences and are very quiet, they seem fidgety, they are breathing harder and faster, they cannot get comfortable lying down on the exam table, they almost never ask questions, etc., I wonder if being back in the exam room, hearing their heart rate on the monitor and the smells of the clinic, being asked about their health is probably all reminding them of that very scary health event and triggering them. Do you think that it, do you think this is PTSD or simply white coat syndrome in a more extreme display? Berto, what do you think? I mean, I can fully relate to this. Uh, my, you know, I have two, two traumatic memories uh of hospitals um probably at least two the the two that really come to mind immediately are one when i had my tonsillectomy when i was little and it was preceded by these ridiculously over the top painful earaches and uh that was super traumatic and then when i had a terrible crash a car accident when i was 18 uh and i was in the hospital and so i think for me, I always remember, especially the latter, but I, I always remember whenever I go to the hospital, I've been to the hospital, it's just like, that's present in my mind. And that car crash nearly, I mean, I could have easily been killed in that. So it was an immediate mortality reminder. Um, and so for me, I, yeah, I get triggered for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. So listener Claire, Absolutely. Can people have post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of their experiences with medical professionals or hospitals and be triggered when they're coming into your exam room? A hundred percent. 
And I am one of those people. Um, for me, uh, I had a traumatic experience in a clinic once, and uh, I didn't know it was traumatic in the moment, but my body certainly coded it as tra- I coded it as, oh, that was kind of funny. But my body was like, that was awful. My cognitive mind was like, eh, whatever. But yeah. my but my body was like, no, 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 that was not good. And I, I went to my eye doctor, and I've been going to the eye doctor since I was in the fourth grade. And every year, in order to test my eyes, they put those eye drops to dilate my, my yeah. eyes because they need to examine the back of, of, of my eye. And they put those eye drops in, and it dilates the eyes. And um, I went to, after what my body experienced is traumatic in the hospital, I went to my eye doctor, I don't know, a couple months later. And the, the optometrist put the eye drops in my eyes, and my body associated the idea of a drug from a physician <laughs> as being absolutely triggering of, of the trauma that I went through. And oh. I broke out in a massive sweat and I was breathing heavily and I didn't let her actually put the drop in the other eye because it, I was so, my body was freaking out. My mind was like, oh. dude, it just, a, it just dilates your eyeball. <laughs> like, oh no. And that's the, the worst thing that will happen today. The rest of it is just looking at a chart and saying if you can read the line, you know, like – but my body was like, um, you are going back into the lion's den. You've been here before. This is bad and I'm going to shut this crap down. Again, <laughs> my conscious mind is everything. So, so listener, Claire, could you have people that can be triggered? Yeah. Hospitals are traumatic for a lot of people. Now, you, you ask the question – do you think this is PTSD or simple white coat syndrome? Now, I don't know what you mean by white coat syndrome, but typically what it means is just like it, it's something that a lot of physicians will throw out there. Just like, oh, it's white coat syndrome. You're essentially talking about a mild PTSD. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why? It's not like we're born afraid of white coats. <laughs> we real, you know, when you're two years old and you're being forced to be given a vaccine and you associate white, it's a, it's a traumatic reaction. So, yeah. The distinction is not there. What, so what we're only talking about is by saying, do you think it's PTSD or simple white coat syndrome? I'm saying yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's both. It's really about how, how severe is the reaction. <laughs> right, right. So the other question you ask is, what is the best way to show up as a clinician for a patient who is experiencing PTSD and or white coat syndrome? Uh, Berto, what would you wish that listener Claire would do if you were having a freak out traumatic reaction at a hospital? Um, okay. So I think there's been uh, something that I've experienced directly that I didn't think was the right approach. And I, and I, and I had a different experience with a different uh, physician that was great. The one that was not the right approach basically fed into my anxiety by like, oh, yeah, that could be a problem. Ooh, you know, like almost like getting more worried than I am. <laughs> that didn't help me. The other physician was great because they actually said, oh, you know what? They, they were very upfront. It's like, um, I have I have these these issues too. And like they talked about themselves. They also actually talked about um, uh, other patients, obviously not by name or anything, but like I've had these situations. And let me, let me tell you, you know, what I usually see, blah, blah. And so like they, they fully acknowledged 
my anxiety. They, they normalized it. They talked about what I might feel and uh, me help. And, and I recognized as they were talking, I'm like, oh, yeah, that is kind of like what I'm feeling, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, like, they got at my level and gave me examples. They, they told me what to expect. They offered me alternatives. Like, they said, like, look, you know, we could even prescribe you uh, an anti-anxiety thing, blah, blah, blah. What they didn't do was minimize it or make it worse. Like, they didn't say, like, oh, stop it. You're an adult. Or because I have, I've literally had a doctor before say, uh, not that, but it was more like, um, oh, everyone, everyone thinks that it's worse than it is or something really dismissive like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know? Drives and then, nuts. so that's, that's the key. It's like, don't dismiss it. Don't also make it worse by being like, feeding into the things. Like, yeah, no, it could be a heart attack. It could be whatever. And, and, and just get at my level. Acknowledge what's happening. Give me little examples. Be there with me. Yeah. Talk to me. Yeah. One of the best experiences I'd had that really was a corrective experience and helped further my recovery from the trauma was I was going to have a tooth implant, which requires a, uh, the, the, you have to, you know, cut my gums open, flap it open. And then with progressively bigger and bigger drills, drill into my jaw to, uh, create a spot for a implant to be put, you know, a tooth to be sort of, they have to (laughs) essentially make a metal root that is embedded in my jaw, you know? Sounds fun. Yeah. And so I was really worried about it, but I knew I needed to do it. And my dentist, a fellow Asian brother, said that he has anxiety about going to the dentist too. And and he said, let me, he's like, I totally get it, but understand that I've done this a million times and a lot, I'm an expert on this and there's nothing to worry about. And I'm going to give you a prescription to Valium. And I want you to not be shy about these pills. I'm going to ask you to take a full-on dose the the morning of. And if you want to, even take one the night before because you might be freaking out the night before. And then I want you to bring um, another dose with you to the office just in case it's not enough for you. (laughs) So this guy said, I have anxiety too, and I take benzodiazepines when I when I need to. Here's a pers- here's a script. Here's what you do. I'm an expert. Everything will be fine, and I'm here for you. And if you have a freak out, just tell me. Um, and I've had other medical professionals that basically tell me, like I had a uh, another orthopedic surgeon or a mouth surgeon. Is that orthopedic surgeon? No, um, no orthodontist. Orthodontics. Yeah. Anyway. Mouth surgeon, and I, uh, I, I told him. By the way, you know, I might, I might faint. You know, I'm, I'm not proud of my anxiety, but I want to tell people. By the way, I might faint, which could really complicate your surgery. Right. And they're like, "Oh no, you won't faint." I'm like, "No, no, I think you understand. Like, I might actually faint. Oh no, no, you'll be fine. I'll put your feet up." Like, like you're not saying it. Like, hey. Uh, I think humans sometimes faint. I'm a human. I might faint. Right. You're saying, no, I, Kirk Honda, know myself and I might faint. Yeah. And the guy's like, you're not going to faint. You'll be fine. You know, he's, and he was, he was just, ah, you'll be fine. You'll be, I know how to believe. You know. I think he thought of it as an insult to him that I was going to be afraid or something. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. Regardless of anything you do, just yeah. the fact that you're doing surgery on my mouth I might have a massive panic attack and or faint. It's like, no, 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 you'll be fine. I'm like, I don't think you understand. And it boggles the mind that medical professionals 
do not understand that we've talked about this before do not understand involuntary fainting it's not like i'm purposely fucking fainting yeah i'm not purposely having a panic attack you understand it's not it's not like i'm i'm misunderstanding the context my body has a reaction that is independent of my conscious mind we all right. understand that right you're a fucking doctor i'm not asking some random person on the street you know i'm not asking the dry cleaners to understand basil vagal you know what i mean um so anyway some tips uh what was your name again uh claire ask about it so berto said a lot of these things ask your patients you even if they don't seem scared just be like hey how's your emotions doing when i have Medical, and many medical professionals will do this. So they'll just check in. They'll say, like, hey, how you feeling? They'll put hand on shoulder. Hey, how you feeling? That really helps me. Yep. Value it. Don't put it down. Also, give them control. So when I had surgery on my mouth um, with the guy that I didn't like, I actually just took control. So as I was about to faint, I actually stopped the procedure. I put oh. my hand up and said, and said, stop what you're doing because – by giving me that power, and I had to stop it a handful of times, I prevented myself from passing out. So, so giving people um, power. Also, like Berto was saying, it's like options. Hey, we don't have to do this. We could do that. We could do that. What do you want to do? Also, tell them what you're going to do. You know, as, as you're about to do something, say, okay, so what we're going to do, you, know, you, you, you lay it all out. I'm going to put you on the table and... We're gonna. I'm gonna take some pictures, and we're gonna do this. And there's not gonna be any invasive, any invasive. There's you know, there's not gonna be any needles or anything. So don't worry about that. You know, explain the whole process. Don't just forge ahead because people don't. They're like, oh my god, what's gonna happen to me? Also, ask people what'll help. Just say, hey, um, if you have anxiety, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Because people know they'll be like, well, it'll help if I can sit up. You know, those kinds of things. Also. Um, Refer people to a phobia specialist. This is what drives me nuts, is that there are so many patients suffering from health anxiety in a hospital, or at least just mild anxiety. And how many physicians have a card of a therapist who specializes in health health anxiety? How many physicians know of someone that can help them with that? I've literally never heard a physician um, say, oh, by the way, I have someone that you can talk to about that. Never. I'm always left on my own. But Thank God I'm my own therapist and I understand, I know how to treat my own anxiety. But yeah. if I didn't, you know what I mean? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> anyway, next email. Let's, let's power through, Berto. What do you say? Let's do it. Upper tier patron Mary from New York says, can you talk about the effects of a family member taking their own life on the other members of the family? So, you know, when someone dies of suicide, what happens? So I thought I'd ask you, Berto, this because you actually had a yeah. – family member die of suicide. So what what happened to you and your family? Yeah, so when I was little, I think I was in the third grade, uh, an uncle of mine uh, killed himself. And he was very young. He was, I think he was 19 or something like that. Um, and it was devastating for for my family. Uh, my grandma, that was her her littlest kid just out of the house joined the air force he was the pride of the family and i was too little to fully get it i i mean i i looked up to him i thought he was the you know 
amazing, but I, I didn't spend that much time with him. So when it happened, I was just kind of confused. I was like, wait, what? Plus we weren't told, we weren't told that it was suicide. Uh, we were told it was an accident. And so I'm like, wait, what? And then when I went over to see my grandma, oh my gosh, it was, she was devastated and she hung on, hung on to me for dear life. And I, I remember to this day the gasping for air her of hers, you know, like her trying to control herself and the, the inconsolable crying. And she was grabbing me so tightly. And I was just sitting there like, I have no idea what's happening here. I mean, I, I sort of got it. I'm like, okay, he's, he's died and this is terrible. But, um, and, you know, there was no one, of course, to help, like, this is not done. It's not done. There's never like, can you imagine like what a society it would be if like, oh, a person in this family has, great, we have people on standby to assist the family because we are a well-trained society in these sort of situations. And so, of course, we're going to have to, you know, like people that know what's up and how appropriate it is for a little third grader to be, uh, you know, <laughs> um, exposed to this kind of grief directly for so long and all these things, like none of that, right? So uh, what I saw was a, a broken family and a broken grandma. Um, and then when I got older and I came to understand what had happened, that it was a suicide, uh, I was even more confused because <laughs> I was like, wait, but he was like so successful and he was like a star basketball player like I'm so popular and good looking and why how could this happen it was it was just unbelievable um and honestly it took me probably all the way to doing this podcast and doing episodes about suicide and, and a few other things and my own therapy to even really come to grips with like oh wow he must have been in such pain like we'll never know you know so anyways yeah it was it was traumatic and to this day like for years the room that it was his room was sacrosanct and like my grandpa kept it sort of like insulated from the world and it was really bad if you touch stuff in there or move stuff around and um but it took so it took a long long time for it to sort of heal and even nowadays you know i asked for pictures of him uh last year or earlier this year i can't even remember now um oh i was it was last year because i was making a video about uh something that related to him and my aunt found it so odd that I wanted pictures, but she sent me some. And they were pictures I had never seen. And it occurred to me, man, there's no pictures of him. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's devastating, as Berto is, you know, discussing and showing us. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. It's a loss. There's self-blame. If you're a parent, you blame yourself tremendously. But everyone tends to blame themselves. There's anger. You can feel really angry at the person. It's traumatizing because whenever there's a death, it can become traumatizing. But it can become particularly traumatizing when you know how they died. Because it's not usually not violent in some way. And for a lot of people with suicide, there's never closure. It just lingers there of like a tragedy or... And the shame that society will impose... You, you don't know who to turn to, as Berto said. It's like you're just left alone by yourself, and you might not even feel like you can reach out to your friends and other people, so you rely on a third grader to 
to comfort you, you know? Yeah. So, and by the way, out there, if you are at risk of suicide, make sure that you get a good therapist or you call the suicide hotline, you just Google it. Um, suicide attention is a very temporary thing. And research shows that if you can just get through, you know, a day or two of high intention of, of suicide, you will not regret it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. All right, next email. Got to power through. The honest patron write, writes, I just listened to the recent podcast, including Birdo, responding rather crossly to the concept of Raylo. Ha! Oh, you want me to get even more cross? I love I, it. I wanted to chime in on it as someone who's been involved in similar ships before. So if you don't know, there's there's Ray and Kylo on Star Wars, and when, after the first um, you know movie with the two of them, there's a lot of internet speculation that the two of them might be in a relationship together. And there's a whole internet culture around ships, you know, Ray, Raylo shipping. You know, they call themselves Raylo shippers, if you will. Okay, it helps to approach these things with the question, what's the fantasy here? For example, it would be unreasonable to claim that someone who likes superhero movies believes that violence is the best solution for every problem because we all understand that the fantasy is being physically powerful enough as an individual to easily solve big problems with a big-ass fight. Similarly, a Raylo-style fantasy tends to spring from the desire to be so awesome as a woman that you could get someone to change their ways just for you. So to get, you know, Ray could change Kylo to be a good boy. It's a powerful fantasy uh, built on one of the few culturally acceptable kinds of power available to women. When you grow up with stories of a good woman changes a man with her love, it's very easy to go from that to what if that woman was able to take that galactic supervillain and make him good? The question of greater morality context doesn't matter anymore than the question of addressing systemic issues such as supervillain after a supervillain is punched because it's not important to the fantasy. Does that make sense, Bruno? No. Oh, that the, but do you understand what no, you're saying? No, it does. Yeah. It does. I uh, just... Uh, the the obvious isn't isn't the only motivation. I'd expect BDSM interests to also play a part for a lot of people with Raylo fantasies, but it's the most common one I've seen. I want also to implore people talking about a mass murderer in Star Wars to think about the quandary of all the innocent people killed in the Death Star, bringing real-life morality into a space wizard adventure story ends up a lot more complicated than good guys versus bad guys. Brito, what do you think? No. 100% no to the no. So listen, first of all, you want to talk to me about, like, you know, Beauty and the Beast and, like, you know, this woman falling for, for this beast and how that is that thing that you've been describing. Yeah, I hear you. And, you know, what was the crime that, that the beast had when he was young is, like, he refused like an old lady because she wasn't good looking enough or whatever. That sucks. That is not on the same level of evil. Number one, number two, like, come on, let's be honest. No one was asking for the emperor to end up with princess Leia. No one. And I don't need to spell why, like, come on. So like, this isn't just what we've described here. Number three, um, no one wants to watch a movie. No one should want to watch a movie where it's Hitler but, you know, it's a romance because, like, there's this woman that kind of wants to change him as he's... No, 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 no. No one wants to watch that. So, if you even put all that aside, it still doesn't make for good storytelling. 
it doesn't make sense for the characters they set up. So, like, it's just garbage. It's garbage all around. And the proof is that when they finally got what they wanted in episode 9, and the kiss, like, okay, you can stand behind that kiss like that was a well-earned kiss. Come on! Everyone's upset about that. No, I will never, never. You can have a ship with Darth Vader and Yoda before you can have Raylo and Kylo. Yeah. Whatever their names are. So dumb. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I kind of get what the Banana's patron is saying. Uh, I, I never heard a, an argument so well articulated. So I can get on board with it. All right. I'll give that. <laughs> patron Amy says, I totally relate to Birdo. I, tur- I totally relate to what Birdo is saying about his fascination with psychopaths. I also have been that way since my youth. I tend to have a hard time tearing myself away from learning more about them, even if they distress me. These people are just such a sharp contrast to our own personalities and traits. I very much relate to Birdo. I can see we both have a lot of just we I can see we both have a love of justice that I believe that plays into this fascination with psychopaths. You just can't wrap your head around how people like this exist and how foreign they are, yet they walk among us. I'm recognizing that there's also this aspect about how these types of stories compel me to want to solve them somehow. Berto, what do you think? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I came to realize over the years that one of the one of the pieces of the puzzle for me were that I used when I was in high school and I read the Ted Bundy biography, or, or more than one, I think, um, the books, I actually I, I had this association to my dad. First of all, in my mind, this is like recently, but this is when I was 15 or 16. It's that long ago. And it was when I had recently left Columbia, right? So it's another weird part because in my head, it was like, well, yeah, it was after I was here for a while. No, I was probably here for a year, maybe, when I read those books. <laughs> so that's crazy. So in my mind, when I look at the picture of Ted Bundy on the back, it sort of reminded me of my dad when he was young, which is not a, not too hard to do because... The pictures in my mind of my dad are 70s male of a similar height, similar hair, similar build, you know. And so, and there was something about his expression that reminded me of like some of my dad's expressions. And my dad was a doctor and as a doctor, he was always very cold and robotic when it came to like human anatomy and surgery and and gore and things like that. So I always had like this mental model of him as like being cold and detached when it came to those things. Uh, And he failed at being functional. And even though I didn't know any of the theories about psychopaths and blah, blah, there was some ways in which I was like, man, so I I made all these associations. And so I remember when I read those books, I'm like, man, it's like my dad, but not the killing parts. (laughs) And uh, so it had that for me too. It was almost like reading about my father in this bizarre way. I didn't know that. Huh. I, I, I never said this before. This is a brand new revelation on the podcast. Wow. And so again, my dad is not a killer. He's not a, probably not a psychopath. But but there were a lot of things where... Unfeeling, just, uh, lack of remorse, bad, uh, that, bad, hurtful behavior. And secrets. There was something about secrets and association to secrets because my dad clearly kept a lot of secrets yeah. from us. And these people, these psychopaths, they do nothing if not keep constant secrets. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I didn't know that. 
We've learned a lot of things today, bro. You know, yeah. we've been podcasting for several hours, and uh, maybe like your walls are coming down. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is what happens after twelve hours of podcasting, but it's only been three. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last question, bro. And I'm so excited because I'm actually gonna finish. I have a doc, a Google Ooh. doc of all the emails just for you. Oh, and nice. so we're almost there. Patron Kathleen from Maryland says, my partner is a hobbyist painter and has several sizable portraits of his ex-girlfriends prominently displayed on the walls of his home. He dated several models before and would use them as subjects in his art. To me, it feels strange to have these large portraits of his ex-romantic partners, one of whom he dated for several years, on the wall. It seems intimate, but he argues that it's just art. I was wondering if my reaction to this is a jealous reaction, which I don't really experience otherwise, or if there is something valid about my uncomfortable feeling every time I have to look at them. Berto, what do you think? <laughs> That's a fascinating, fascinating one. Because I've heard of, you know, pictures like, oh, why do you have that picture? You know, you still keep that picture. But these are paintings that I, I'm assuming he did. Right. Like he made the paintings. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's almost maybe it's wrong, but it feels almost more personal. Like it's he painted them. It also I do see that association. There's something intimate about it. I take it that they're sensual pictures to begin with, or, or paintings. And so you know it was at the height of their relationship, and he's painting them. And and so there's a paint me, Jack. There. Yeah. So I can totally understand that. I can totally relate. Uh, not relate as in I've gone through that, but I can I could I could imagine myself feeling those pangs like I'm walking in and it's like there's some dude painted on the wall in various levels of undress and it's very seductive and I'm like uh, that's not me. Uh, did you look on? under the flap? Did you open? Did you lift the flap? Um, at the same time, I also paradoxically maybe. I fail to understand how people can actually fully disconnect their previous relationships from their lives. It's, it's sort of almost a failing of mine. Like, I've always found that hard to understand. Like, I have these ex-girlfriends that I'm like, I don't understand how we're not friends anymore. And even though our friendships lasted very, very little time. In my mind, I'm like, once I, I become friends with someone, I'm like, why, why would people not stay friends? It's weird. And maybe it stems from my my early childhood with people not staying friends and my parents irrevocably separating forever. Well, maybe I'm like, well, that why and do that? there's just a cultural notion that you just don't do that. And yeah. so I think your logical, intelligent, wise yeah. mind is bumping up against a, now I'm not saying we're all supposed to be friends with our exes, but on the, you know, people tend to err on the side of not being friends when it, it would be okay. In fact, yeah. it would enhance everyone's life if you were, you know, friendly and would, yeah. you know, maybe have coffee once a year to catch up, that kind of thing. Now, where I net out, though, is, and I, I think I net out with this generally, is uh, it's about conversation, trust, and comfort levels. And so if this is really troubling you, and of course, I you, you should look into what it is about it and, and it, you know, are the feelings of threat something that you can handle and deal with. But but I, I would encourage conversation. And if it really is causing difficulties, I, I don't think it's something you should just put up with. Like, they're not necessarily entitled to, like, rub their previous per- relationships in your face all the time. Like, so I, I don't think that's an automatic, yeah, they're an artist. They're entitled to have all their, like, 
I can imagine a billion other examples of where like you might be bothered by someone's art, even though it's their art. And if it's always there, it might be something you don't appreciate that has nothing to do with prior relationships. But in this case, I would say you got to talk about it. You got to try to find where your boundary is, uh, explore a little bit about, you know, feel around that because that might be a little bit unfounded or, or maybe based on traumas or whatever. Uh, but I wouldn't give it an automatic pass. I wouldn't say, well, it's art, so like, it's fine. Yeah, interesting. Well, so there's no right answer to this, even though society would say there's an answer. Most people would agree with you, patron Kathleen, and say, he's got to take those down. But it's not necessarily true. It's a shortcut to a problem. We want to define the problem. And you kind of laid out a part of the problem in your question. You're saying, is it jealous or is it valid? Uh, that implies that jealous is not valid. Jealousy is is always valid because it's how you feel. Our feelings are okay. They're, they're always valid. What do we do with those feelings? That's the key. So you say that you don't usually feel jealous, but I'm guessing if we heard more from you, we would absolutely define this in my definition of jealousy. He has pictures of his ex-girlfriend on the wall, and it feels like it's going to it feels like he's still involved with them emotionally or you're going to lose him back to them or lose him to other women or, you know, that's jealousy and it's also valid. So it's okay. Um, I think by valid, you're saying, is it, is it a valid concern that I have? And again, we don't want to delineate that. So um, the key is, is what do we do with those feelings? So you have to define the feeling first you have to know okay what do i feel and how do i feel what what is it about those paintings um and what feelings are they producing and then you tell them when i see those paintings this is how i feel i don't want to tell you to take them down because you know it's your house and it's your your art but i tell you when i see those paintings i feel this then you have a conversation maybe he can maybe he'll say oh i didn't know that i'll take them down no big deal or he'll be like, well, how about I address those feelings so that you can be reassured? And then when you see those paintings, it won't make you feel that way anymore. You know, maybe we could experiment with that. The problem is not the paintings. The problem is, it's not even a problem. It's just what's happening, which is that you're having an emotion, which is okay. And so tell him those feelings, give him a chance to address it. If he really understood how you felt, and he's not a psychopath, which I, I don't know, then he will figure out a way to make you feel better, I, either by taking it down or by reassuring you in a way such that the paintings don't actually perturb you that much. That's the key. It's, you know, that this is often what people do with jealousy. So they'll be like, well, you know, if we extend this to another realm, it's like, well, she's texting... Uh, with a guy at work or she no better situation she's going out with her co-workers after work in a group of you know 15 people and there's going to be guys there okay so the solution is she can't do that or there can't you can't go out to work with it's got to be only women so that's akin to take take those paintings down that we understand is not the solution it it'll just it it it, it'll temporarily make you feel better but the control will just get worse and worse the person should say 
when you go out with your friends, coworkers from work, it triggers something in me that's not your fault that makes me feel bad. It makes me feel jealous. It makes me feel worried I'm going to lose you or that someone's going to touch you or something. It's not your fault that I'm feeling that way, but I feel that way. Is, you know, is there anything we can do about that? And you talk about it and you work it out and maybe there's some things that they can do. And maybe your partner's like, oh, well, maybe I just won't go. I don't care about going out, you know, for drinks with my coworkers. So, you know, give your partner a chance to rise to the occasion. Let them know how you feel. Let them solve your problem. Don't try to preemptively solve the problem by control or, you know, giving messages of disapproval or that kind of thing. It's, it, that usually is not the answer. You know, for him to learn that you love him so much that the paintings hurt you because you love him so much you don't want to lose him, that's a wonderful message. To tell him that he's a douchebag and he needs to take those things down and, you know, what kind of partner does that to a woman? And you know it's not normal to have your exes on your wall. Like, that's going to hurt his feelings and it's, it's, it'll yeah. produce what you're worried about, which is distance and potentially rejection. All right, that's Birdo. True. Final word on today's email episodes. Email emails episode. <laughs> I look forward to a time where, when I walk some into a hallway, someone has made progressive paintings of me at each stage of my life, and they've given me a grade at each one of those stages of my life, and I'm hoping those grades keep going up. But then there's one last painting with a question mark, and I'm hoping he hands me the brush. And I can paint it myself. Well, that is it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 